Hello, and welcome to Modern American Diplomacy, a podcast exploring the lives and contributions of America's most accomplished career diplomats. I'm your host, Jeremy Beer, recording in Washington, D.C. Today, we're joined by Ambassador Mark Grossman, one of the most distinguished diplomats in modern American history. Ambassador Grossman served in the State Department with distinction for over 31 years, including assignments as the State Department's Director General, Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, and Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. Ambassador Grossman holds the rank of Career Ambassador, the highest rank in the United States Foreign Service. Ambassador Grossman, welcome to the program. Jeremy, thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Certainly, sir. Thank you again for joining us here today. I'd like to start with your family and your childhood, if we could. Your parents met as teenagers in California in the 1940s, and once they eventually got married, they settled down in East L.A. Your dad became an elementary school teacher and a speech therapist, and your mom was also looking to become a teacher and went back to UCLA to get a teaching certificate and a degree, but she sadly passed away when you were only 13 years old. Your dad remarried a few years later, and then you went off to the University of California, Santa Barbara. You'd been on the debate team in high school, and that's partly what helped get you into UCSB, where you continued debate. You also worked part-time at the Jewel Tea Company as a door-to-door salesman. Tell us a little bit about those early years in California and a bit about how your debate experience and your work at the Jewel Tea Company helped prepare you for becoming a diplomat. Well, thank you very much. You know, when I look back at that time to have grown up in California, East Los Angeles, and then Orange County in the late 50s and early 60s, the thing I remember most about it was that it seemed so equal somehow to me that all of the people who were our neighbors, vast suburbs that had been built, everybody was what I would consider to be good middle class, but slightly lower middle class. So as you said, my dad was a school teacher, but the neighborhood was plumbers and electricians and estimators for construction companies. And we didn't see people who were really poor and we didn't see people who were very rich, maybe because we weren't looking, but it seemed to me at that time a very equal and egalitarian place to have grown up. And I've always thought back that that was a very important lesson, an important idea that I took from that time. UC Santa Barbara, as you say, was a great opening for me. I had done debate in high school and it had taught me about organization and presentation. And as you say, luckily it helped me get into UC Santa Barbara, where I debated then for another couple of years. In terms of the Jewel Tea Company, it was a great opportunity. I worked there the three summers I was at UC Santa Barbara, and then I worked there full-time for a year, year and a bit after I came back from an education in England. And it taught me perseverance, first of all, because you had to get up in the morning. We were totally on commission. If you didn't sell anything, you didn't make any money during the day. And so you had to keep going from door to door to door to door. It opened up a great curiosity for me. I was always interested to see what was on the other side of the door. And I kept that curiosity, I hope, through my career. And then finally, I got to the point where I could talk to anybody. So I didn't find it very daunting to be put in certain situations where diplomats get put into about big rooms full of people. I had knocked on doors in Bakersfield, California. So moving around a room wasn't that hard. But really, it was about perseverance. And it was about the idea that you had to be curious and you had to knock on doors and that there was likely to be an opportunity on the other side of that door. Interesting. 
So not too much later after that period, in March of 76, you take and pass the Foreign Service exam. Tell us a little bit about your first tour in the Foreign Service. How did you end up getting assigned to Islamabad? And tell us a little bit about those road trips to visit friends in Afghanistan. And maybe tell us about your visit with Askar Khan and how his message to you then is perhaps even more poignant today. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Well, I was very lucky in my first post. And again, I think these days, a lot of people think that if I get this internship, it'll lead to this and this job will lead to that. And that there's some kind of plan. And I've come to think as I look back that there's not much of a plan. A lot of what happens to you is random. Now you have to be ready Mm. to grab every opportunity as it goes by. But I tell new officers in the foreign service, there's always somebody who says, how did you know that if you went to Islamabad, you'd end up as some senior officer. And I laugh and say, I was 25, I guess, or 26. And Mm. I can't tell you, Jeremy, why, but my goal in life at that time, go see the Taj Mahal. And so (laughs) in my A100 class, I looked down the list of posts. I looked and I thought, well, Islamabad is as close as I'm going to get to the Taj Mahal on this list. I'll just sign up for it. And I didn't realize, of course, until later how happy I had made a number of career counselors and other people in the (laughs) personnel system who thought they were going to have to probably encourage somebody to go to Islamabad, but I went. And it turned out to be great. I appreciate you remembering the scenario with Oscar Khan. He was a former military officer, Air Force officer. He'd been put in house arrest up somewhere in Pakistan. And as the young political officer, I was given the job to go see him. And I went to see him one afternoon and I asked him, what was he doing? What was his life like? And then he asked me, do you know what's the thing I admire most about the United States of America? And I said, no, sir, what's that? And he said, the peaceful transfer of power. And for somebody who was in house arrest and there because he had opposed the government, I found it a very compelling answer and something I've always held with me. So, sir, you had that tour in Islamabad and your work, I think, was recognized. And when you came back to Washington, You were selected to become one of two staff assistants in the NEA front office, the other being Edmund Hull, and you're both working for Hal Sanders. This is the summer of 1979. By December of that year, as a staff assistant, you're dealing with our embassy in Pakistan burning down, the takeover of our embassy in Libya, the Soviets invading Afghanistan, and the Iran hostage crisis, which ultimately leads to Secretary Vance's resignation. How did you and Edmund, as relatively young officers, handle the stress of that year? And what did that experience teach you about working at the State Department and working under pressure? Well, I was enormously lucky again to be surrounded by people who were supportive and going to support all of us, especially our leaders. Hal Saunders was a very special human being. He was quiet, He was committed, he was principled, and he listened with great professionalism. He was a great listener, and he was never rattled and never panicked. I learned many years later from Colin Powell, in the military they have this phrase, never let him see his sweat. And Hal Saunders had that capacity to calm everybody down when everybody was trying to get wound up. And so he set the tone for the Bureau. And whatever happened to us, each day, more bad news, more bad news, more bad news. 
he just quietly would sit and say, well, we're just going to have to deal with this and we've got our objectives. We know what we want to do and we're going to keep pursuing them. And I tried to remember that all through my career. That the job of staff people in the first instance is not to rile the boss up. It's to keep the boss calm. Hmm. And then when you become a boss, your job is to be calm. I often tell people when I'm asked from time to time to talk about leadership, what's the first thing? And I said, first thing is be calm. Because what hmm. do people want to see? They don't want to see their leaders in a panic. They want to feel that leadership has got their interest in mind and got the problem solved in some fashion, at least some plan to solve the problem. I was also enormously benefited by the fact that Edmund Hull, and we are still close friends, Edmund Hull was just somebody who I'd never met, but we got on together extremely well. And our job was to make it possible for each other to, as you say, get through this and make our contribution. And what I learned from it, I guess a little bit like the issue about Jewel T was you had to get up every morning and do your best and knock on doors and knock on doors and knock on doors. But I got to see how Edmund reacted, how he lived. And then again, the senior people in NEA just were magnificent role models. And one really good thing is, and the way the Foreign Service works, you'll recognize this, is that Peter Constable, who'd been my DCM in Islamabad, then becomes the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for NEA. So Mm -hmm. there's somebody there I know, can trust, can talk to, and that was an enormous help as well. So during that period, sir, you also met your wife, who was working as a watch officer in the Ops Center. I did. I did. Uh, (laughs) Tell us a little bit about how you met and trying to figure out how to date while you were dealing with all of this and she's on the watch floor and you've got all this madness surrounding the two of you. Well, first of all, the story of our meeting was she was, as you say, a watch officer. As you can imagine, I spent a fair amount of time in the watch that year. Of course, what your listeners, especially your young listeners, will not believe is that we actually used to have to go up to the op center and get cables and paper when there was an immediate cable that came in. It came in by paper and the watch officers would sort it out and give NEA a copy and the secretary, DP, all that. And they would call and they'd say, you, you have an immediate cable here in the op center. You should come get it. And so We've got a lot of exercise going up the stairs to get these pieces of paper, but you got to know the people in the watch pretty well. And so after a while, I gained the courage to ask Mildred out, and I did. And our very first date was the 3rd of November, 1979. And we went to a bluegrass place here in Arlington, had a great time. I got up the next morning, and then it was really hard after that. I don't think we had a second date for some long time because I was working shifts and she was working worse shifts in the op center, eight to 12, eight to 12, four to midnight, four to midnight, midnight to eight, midnight to eight, two days off. And so it took a while for us to get a second date. And just for our listeners, the 3rd of November, the significance there being the hostage situation began November 4th, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yes. The embassy was taken the 4th of November. So you started dating one day before that. So at least you got one day together before seeing each other. (laughs) We did. We did. And as I say, it it took a while to arrange a second date, but we did it. And here we are still happily married. Wonderful. So, sir, following this stint as a staff assistant, you get tapped to work 
with the special advisor for Jewish liaison work at the White House. And not too much after that, you get a job on the Jordan desk in NEA ARN, where one day you're confronted in the hallway by a more senior officer who somehow thinks the Israeli invasion of Lebanon is your fault, even though you're the Jordan desk officer. So tell us a little bit about that episode and how junior and mid-level officers listening to this might look to your example for lessons on how to deal with racism or sexism or bigotry, both within the department, but also in dealing with contacts and partners, particularly overseas. Well, those are all great questions. Let me go back for a minute, though, to the issue of going over to the White House to be in the special office. It was signed by a very prominent Washington lawyer called Alfred Moses, who, again, still remains a friend of ours and a friend of the family. And the reason I raised that is is that he was the first non-career person that I ever worked for. And I'm telling you, I learned an enormous amount from Al Moses about Hmm. what Washington was like, what it was like to see the bigger picture. His work habits were just fantastic. One of his rules was return every phone call that you get every day, which is a rule I still follow. You don't have to talk to everybody, but return all those calls. Hmm. And he taught me some of the ways of Washington that you don't get by sticking in the Foreign Service. And so two things. One is the opportunity to work outside the State Department early in my career and to work for a non-career appointee was, was very important to me as I went along. I was assigned to the Jordan desk. And again, I want to be clear here. What happened to me was small compared to people who face Mm. racism and sexism. Mm -hmm. I don't put this in this category, but I was the desk officer for Jordan. The Israelis invaded Lebanon. An officer confronted me in the hallway, and he had a long reputation for being what was known in the State Department at that time as being an Arabist. And he pushed me against the wall and said, what are your people doing? What's the matter with your people? I, of course, thought he was talking about the Jordanians. I had no idea he was talking about Jews. And I just said to him, you cannot speak to me that way in a federal government office. I have every right to be here as you do. And so please back off and don't do this again. And from there on, you bump into it from time to time. When you think about the history of the State Department, the history of the State Department is not welcoming. Indeed, my grandparents, my father's parents, When I told them I was going to join the State Department and join the Foreign Service, their reaction was, this is not a place for us, quote unquote. Mm. It's not welcoming for us. And I went ahead. I proceeded. I decided this was going to be my life. Interestingly, at that same time, Jeremy, Ambassador Veliotis, who had come to be the Assistant Secretary for NEA, had just come from being the Ambassador to Jordan, was very careful to make sure that my assignment to the Jordan death was not a surprise to then King Hussein, who was very welcoming of me all the time I was the desk officer. And from there, I didn't find any discrimination or hesitation at all. So, sir, let's wrap up this early stage in your career with a quick speed round. I'm going to give you a few names, and maybe you can tell us in what capacity you worked with these people, an anecdote or two about them, and perhaps what they taught you about the Foreign Service or about life. The first name is Art Hummel. Arthur Hummel was, as I say, one of the great old line ambassadors. Uh, He was a serious person. He taught me what it was to be a professional diplomat. He'd stick his head in and say, Mark, I'm going to see the foreign minister. Why don't you come with me? Or one day he said to me, Mark, I'd like to go into this Pakistani Kashmir. Arrange this trip and let me know when we're going to go. And off we went. I got to see him 
interact with really senior people, people I otherwise wouldn't have had the chance to see. The other thing that Ambassador Hummel taught was the value of the written word. He believed in the importance of writing in the Foreign Service. And the lessons he taught me about good reporting, good composition, good ways to present your views were lessons I never forgot. Lord Carrington. Well, Lord Carrington, I had the good fortune to be the deputy director of the private office of the Secretary General of NATO. So I was the deputy chief of staff to Lord Carrington when he was Secretary General for the first two years. And of course, I'd never met a British lord before. He'd been the foreign minister of Britain, the defense minister of Britain, and he was just a great human being and a great teacher. And what I took from him was preparation. So here's this Lord Carrington, who when you saw him in public was the smoothest, easiest, Hmm. best sentences and paragraphs. And why? Because he worked and he worked and he worked on it. For the two years I worked for him, he never, not once, went to a press conference without having spent 15 or 20 minutes with us practicing the answers. And when the press conference was over, we did a hot wash. Did you like that answer? How could I have changed that answer? Hmm. And so he conveyed to me the effort that is required, the preparation that's required to be great. I don't know if I was ever great. He was, but he Hmm. taught me about preparation. My last one, John Whitehead. Similarly, John Whitehead, I was his chief of staff after serving with Lord Carrington. I was the chief of staff and the executive assistant, I guess was the proper title in the deputy secretary's office. John Whitehead had come to the State Department after 10 years of being the chairman of Goldman Sachs. And he'd been at Goldman Sachs for 30 years, his whole career. And George Schultz hired him because he thought that an investment banker would be very good at quickly sizing up opportunities and challenges and being decisive about them. And what I learned from both Carrington, but really from Whitehead was the joy of deciding. Whitehead wanted to decide things and he wanted things to come to him and so that they could be decided and so people could know what to do next. And he didn't just decide them, he loved to decide things. And he conveyed this joy of being in a place where you could make decisions. And I took that from him. And again, I don't say I was ever as good at it as he was. He was fantastic at this. But he loved to decide. (laughs) And at the State Department, what a revolutionary concept. And he was not afraid. (laughs) The other thing that he taught was, if you're going to make these decisions, not every decision is going to be right. And what he taught was that if you made a mistake, Lord knows I made a few, if you could walk in and say to him, I made this mistake, here's the entirety of the mistake I made, here's how big it is, here's what I did to fix this mistake, and here's what I learned from making it, so at least I don't make this mistake again, basically you were absolved Hmm. because he recognized that if you decided 100 things, not everything would be right. So he was a great decider. The other thing he was, was a great delegator. He knew what his job was. He was the deputy secretary of state and he expected people to do their jobs. And and one afternoon, there was a long story and he looked at somebody who was an assistant secretary and said, I will back any decision that you make. And I thought, wow, there's some confidence. There's a hunting license. And you have to be careful, obviously, who you say that to. But I repeated that line many times in my career afterwards when I trusted somebody I knew they were going to do the right thing. I just said, I'll back any decision you make. And when you can do that to your colleagues and your employees, it's an empowering sentence. Hmm. 
So, sir, after your NATO tour in Brussels and your work with Lord Carrington and your work as an executive assistant to D with John Whitehead, you're lined up to be the political counselor in Paris, but an opportunity opens up to become the DCM in Ankara and you take that job. After you return from Turkey, you work as a PDAS in PM, that's our Political Military Affairs Bureau, and then as the executive secretary. And then somewhat unexpectedly, the ambassadorship to Turkey opens up and you are tapped to take that job, which is your first ambassadorship. Tell us a little bit about your confirmation hearing and how that process worked and what you learned going through that process for the first time. Well, the process itself is its own challenges with all the paperwork and mm. everything else that's required. But the challenge for me was the confirmation hearing. Mm. And I'd never testified before. And I think maybe one of the faults of our system is there I was. I'd been in the Foreign Service for a few years and mm. I'd never had to testify. And when I got up there to testify and sat down at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, all the senators, they couldn't have been any more sympathetic to me. And yet I crossed myself up. I forgot who the audience was. I forgot who I was talking to. Mm. And I wound myself around this axle and I did a terrible job. Really, I did. <laughs> Luckily, they confirmed me anyway. <laughs> and I went to Turkey. But I vowed I was never going to do that again. Yeah. And luckily in Turkey, I met a political consultant, an American guy, Robert Squire, who sadly since passed away, who was doing some work for the Turkish government. And he was kind enough to come to our home a few times. And he was a charming, charming guy. And I told him this story. And he said, oh, Mark, this happens. Here's some good tips about <laughs> how to do a better job the next time. So I wrote them down on a little card, which I kept for the rest of my career. And I would slip that card up under the microphone there when I did testimony. Do you recall what you would jot down or what that advice was? The first thing did say, be yourself. Hmm. And then there was a wonderful piece of advice that said, after the question comes, just pause for a moment, gather your thoughts. It's okay. You don't have to start talking right away. Hmm. Bob Squire said that often people don't know what their headline is. They start talking they finally hit their headline about six or eight sentences in and they go back and start all over again. Yeah. And then the other great piece of advice was don't forget your audience here is these senators and focus on them mm. and don't worry about the Greek press and don't worry about the Turkish press and don't worry about someone mm. who's not there. Just focus on these people. They're your audience. And that was enormously important advice, at least for me. The other thing was I tried to watch people who I thought testified fantastically. And one was Larry Eagleburger. And the other was Rich Armitage, who was the Deputy Secretary of State while I was the Undersecretary for Political Affairs. They could really testify. And why? Because they were themselves and they were genuine. And that's the thing I missed the first time. And I tried over the years to get better at it. Hmm. Fantastic. So after your ambassadorship in Turkey, you come back to Washington as the Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs. And after that assignment, you serve for a spell as the director general of the Foreign Service. And then you're tapped to be the undersecretary for political affairs. This is the summer of 2001. Walk us through your concerns of an attack by Al-Qaeda on one of our overseas facilities in those first few months as undersecretary. And your meetings with the Pakistanis in the days leading up to 9-11, and then maybe the actual events of the morning of 9-11 and what it was like to be in such a prominent position in the State Department on that morning. 
Secretary Powell asked if I would be the undersecretary for political affairs. I was having a great time being the director general, but he said, I need you to do this. I said, yes, sir. And so I became the undersecretary of state for political affairs. And you're right, Jeremy, that whole spring and summer of 2001, we were convinced, I was convinced that we were going to have an attack at one of our missions overseas. And Grant Green, who was the undersecretary of state for management and director of diplomatic security, everybody was focused on this and we strengthened our defenses. We tried to keep everybody safe and on their toes. It was week after week after week of this. And it was really hard because as you know from your own experience and I had from being both the DCM and the ambassador of Turkey, you can't ask people to be on high alert Mm. every day, every Mm -hmm. week for months and months and months and months. And yet we Mm -hmm. were convinced that there would be this attack on us abroad. And of course, you know, failure of imagination, there's an attack in Pennsylvania and New York and Washington, D.C. On the day that this happened, 9-11, we'd had our regular staff meeting, Ambassador Armitage, Rich Armitage was the chair, Secretary Powell was in Lima at a meeting there. And the first, we went from the staff meeting to a personnel meeting in Rich's office, and one of his assistants came in and said, there's been a terrible accident, an airplane has hit the World Trade Center, one of the towers. And we proceeded for another few minutes down this personnel meeting, thinking how awful this was. And second report came and Rich stood up and said, this is terrorism. Mm. Everybody go back to their office. This is terrorism. And so I went back to my office. Grant Green went back to his. And the next occurrence, of course, is, is that an airplane hits the Pentagon. And you and those of you who know the Undersecretary for Political Affairs office know that mm-hmm. the windows of that office look over the Lincoln Memorial, then, of course, the Pentagon. Mm. And so while I did not see it, a number of my staff members who were watching a TV propped up against one of those windows, watched that airplane hit the building. Our window shook. And I was convinced that we were gassed. Mm. I called Grant Green, who was on the other side of the building, and, of course, could not see. I reported to him what was going on. and We decided to evacuate the State Department, which we did. Rich Armitage and I decided we would stay, and with the very courageous people who were then manning the op center, we fell back to the op center and tried to run the State Department from there. Of course, (laughs) we were just horrified. Some hours later, CNN was scrolling that there'd been a car bomb outside the State Department, and we felt to ourselves, here we evacuated people into more danger. Mm -hmm. Turns out it wasn't true, but we never could get CNN to stop scrolling that. Secretary Powell came back from Lima. I went out to Andrews Air Force Base to meet him, drove with him to the White House. I didn't really have much to say, as you can imagine, and Hmm. not very many good ideas. But I dropped him off at the White House, came back to the State Department, and we did our best for the next few days. Hmm. The other thing I think that was very memorable for me was when we weren't sure what was going to happen, and we thought maybe the State Department would be on somebody's attack list. We drafted a cable to all of our missions overseas. And it was very simple. It said, United States has been attacked. We don't know what's going to happen to the State Department. But if we're not here, we are counting on you to do the right thing. And that was all it said. It was three or four lines long. And we sent it. And we felt a lot better having sent it because we said to people, you know what the right thing to do is. And if we're not here, just do it. So in May of 2005, you decide to retire with 29 years of service, almost all of which was served in demanding high-profile positions. 
But in December of 2010, Dick Holbrook suffers a terrible heart attack in the State Department, and you receive a phone call from Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Tell us a little bit about that phone call and about your thought process in considering a return to service as the senior representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, having been away from the department for a few years. Well, first, of course, what a shock that Ambassador Holbrook would die there at the State Department or at the hospital just up the street. Mm. And again, I had great admiration for him and for all of the people who were working in that special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan office. Secretary Clinton called me and asked if I would do this. And my answer was, well, someone has to do it. Mm. And it was a matter for me of service. And here, one of the great things I think about being married to a then also former foreign service officer was, this wasn't much of a discussion at home. I reported the conversation and she said, well, of course you have to do this. Secretary of State has called. This is a request from the Secretary of State and the president. So of course they'll do it. And so this wasn't so hard to decide. The work was harder, but the decision was not hard. I had given my oath of office and here was another chance to live it. And so I took the job and I did it the best I could for two years. Any final thoughts or words of wisdom or support that you'd like to deliver to folks currently serving out in the field? Well, I don't know about any words of wisdom, but my final (laughs) word is just to thank everybody for their service. And as you can tell, I was an enthusiastic foreign service officer. I was an enthusiastic State Department employee. I hope, as I say, people will continue to pursue it as a career, but we owe an enormous debt of gratitude to every single person who's serving today. And I'm glad to have the opportunity to say so. Ambassador Grossman, on behalf of all of our listeners, our heartfelt thanks for joining us today. You can find more detail on Ambassador Grossman's post-State Department career at the Cohen Group, where Ambassador Grossman works as a vice chairman. Ambassador Grossman is also a non-resident fellow with the Future of Diplomacy Project at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard University's Kennedy School. Special thanks to the Una Chapman Cox Foundation and the American Academy of Diplomacy for supporting today's program. If you're interested in exploring a career in the Foreign Service, please visit careers.state.gov to find out more about today's guests or to dig further into the history and practice of U.S. diplomacy. Please visit uccoxfoundation.org or 25yearapprenticeship.com. A special thanks to the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training for providing much of the background for today's program. You can find additional diplomatic oral histories at adst.org. Lastly, please take a minute to rate and review this podcast so that other folks interested in the foreign service and foreign policy can find us. Thanks very much.